Welcome to the Resources for Integrated Care webinar series, Caring for Individuals with Alzheimer's Disease and Related Dementias. This podcast is excerpted from a webinar presented live in the fall of 2015. This webinar series is presented by the Lewin Group in collaboration with Community Catalyst and the American Geriatric Society and is supported through the Medicare-Medicaid Coordination Office and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. MMCO is dedicated to ensuring beneficiaries enrolled in Medicare and Medicaid have access to seamless, high-quality health care that includes the full range of covered services in both programs. To support providers in their efforts to deliver more integrated, coordinated care to Medicare Medicaid enrollees, MMCO is developing technical assistance and actionable tools based on successful innovations and care models. To learn more about current efforts, please visit resourcesforintegratedcare.com. In this podcast, Dr. Karen Rose, Associate Professor of Nursing at the University of Virginia, will explore transitions of care, empowering families in the process. Thank you. I plan to spend the next few minutes exploring the roles of families in care transitions and ways that providers can assist family members as they navigate the health care system. So in 2014, what we know is that there were almost 16 million family members and other unpaid caregivers of people with Alzheimer's disease who provided an estimated 18 billion hours of unpaid care. And again, that's billion with a B. Um, and conservatively, this came in these unpaid hours of care had a value of almost $218 billion. We know, too, that caregivers of persons with Alzheimer's disease provide care for a longer time on average than caregivers of older adults with other conditions. We know, too, that caregiving takes a toll on families, that on the one side, families um, do report positive aspects of caregiving, such as family togetherness and certainly a satisfaction from helping their loved one. On the flip side of that coin, though, we know that family caregivers do experience high levels of stress. In fact, over half of all family caregivers say that the emotional stress that they're experiencing is high or very high. So again, we need to treat family caregivers with respect and handle them with care. Next slide, please. So what do families want? Um, First, and most importantly, families want to be in the know. They want to be informed, they want to be heard, they want to be ready, and they want to know what supportive services are available to them and how to access them. I believe it's very important that we not make assumptions about what families know. For example, a transfer to or from one setting to another can be a very traumatic event for families, so we need to address this with them with um, complete understanding. And certainly beyond financial implications, which are significant, transferring care from one setting to another can be incredibly stressful for family members. There's often a sense of loss and failure and uncertainty. Next slide. So how do we best keep families informed? Again, we cannot over-communicate with family members, and I use the adage kind of early and often, speaking to family members early in the process and often to reinforce information is very helpful. Again, not making assumptions. 
for example, just because a, um, a person a person with dementia was admitted from a nursing home, say, nursing home A, doesn't mean that the family wants them to return to nursing home A or that that's even an option depending upon the needs of the care recipients. And families may not always understand that. So they need to know what the plan is for discharge, when, where, under what circumstances. They need open and honest communication about what the care recipient needs and an assessment of who is truly best able to provide that care. And they need sensitivity because this is, can be a very difficult time for families. Families may now find themselves in a, in a place where they need to have some difficult conversations with other family members that they've been avoiding or putting off. Um, so again, this is a, a critically a sensitive time for families. Next slide. So how to hear families, and I know that I'm speaking to an audience of largely social workers, and so I've, on some level I believe I'm preaching to the choir, but I, because I know that you all do this so very, very well. But what families um, need from us are they need for us to ask their opinions. They need to be able to express what they want, what is in the best interest they believe for their care recipient, what are the um, wishes and the desires of both the person with the disease and with their family. What will work and what won't? What are their supportive services? And for how often and how long can they really rely on some of their support systems? We need to summarize discussions and restate decisions at every meeting that we have with family members, providing them and, and our medical records with written documentation so that all providers are in the know. And we certainly do need to everyone enlist the assistance from other from others in the healthcare team, social workers, other supportive staff, chaplains and other therapists. Next slide, please. Families often discuss that they weren't ready um, to, to for their loved one to be discharged to them or to where they're being discharged. And so I think it's really important that we help families be ready for this transition. Again, communicating early and often, in person and in writing, and helping family members plan for what-if situations. I'll talk more about that in a, in a bit. Families need to know how they can best be organized to be ready for whatever situations arise. And I believe that one of the most important aspects of that is to help them organize a patient file. That file would include a current list of medications, chronic medical conditions, follow-up appointment dates, and certainly enough paper, blank paper, so that they can document any new information that they receive, any new instructions um, that they receive along the way. Two, it's important to discuss realistic expectations about roles of family members in an atmosphere that promotes, that promotes guilt-free discussions. Certainly taking into consideration that family members may have other obligations, work, family, their own health. So helping families be become very realistic about what they can and cannot really take on becomes vitally important. Next slide. A lot of work has been done now on how we need to help families be ready, for example, for um, visits with their providers. And so there are some best practices that are out there and available for family members. Reminders such that 
not going to healthcare providers by themselves, that two ears and two eyes are certainly better than one, that they should have a place to document questions that they might have for their healthcare providers so that they remember to ask them, and then a place, too, to document what, the, what answers they receive. It's also helpful to um, remind families that they need to anticipate any care recipient needs that their loved one might have in route um, or while at the healthcare provider visit. Sometimes families travel great distances to get to healthcare providers and they really need some additional help for how to anticipate what needs their loved one might have. I think it's important to give families a sense that they don't have to do this alone. In fact, that it's in their loved one's best interest for them not to do this part alone, that to take another family member, a neighbor, a beloved friend, anyone with them to help them. And to help family members realize, too, that going to visit the health care provider can be exhausting for everyone, for care recipients and caregivers. So they need to plan accordingly. Next slide, please. So the what-if situations. I think it's very important for providers to give family members parameters, if you will, for some commonly occurring scenarios, things like delirium, falls, incontinence, and to speak of them um, not using medical jargon. So instead of talking about delirium, saying confusion, Instead of maybe incontinence, talking about having accidents or urinating, something like that. And helping families to be realistic about their plans for how much assistance they can and cannot provide. And to remember that it's their choice. Um, to give family members a sense that not every emergency may mean that they need to go to the emergency room. So providing them with ways to think through some likely occurrences. And I believe what we know from the literature and from our own kind of common sense is that to the extent that we can help families keep their regularly scheduled appointments with their health care providers, that this hopefully avoids visits to emergency rooms. Next slide, please. Family members need to know that there are supportive services available for them in their communities, but they may need help in accessing them and knowing how to access them. I've listed here on the slide some typical community resources that are available for families, and this can be critically important for them. For example, the local area agency on aging, which may include access to Meals on Wheels and nutritional supplements. Certainly, there's a local Alzheimer's Association. Access to respite services, both in-home and facility-based. There's certainly volunteer services, oftentimes available through churches, organizations, and here in my um, city there is even a university-based respite volunteer service available, and that's not uncommon. Family members need to know that there are adult daycare settings and that there are some web-based, certainly, resources for them. One that I particularly like is entitled Senior Navigator, and so you can Google that, and there are other web-based services. Senior Navigator provides an enormous amount of information for families, both spouses and partners and children and grandchildren who are taking care of their loved one with Alzheimer's disease. So I think particularly when we start thinking about distance caregiving situations, families need to know that there are some web-based services that can keep them in the know and anticipating what might be helpful for their loved one. 
just a word of caution here too. Too too often I see that family members are are given just a handout, if you will, a written piece of paper with a whole long laundry list of community-based resources, and and that's not overly helpful. Families don't know how to access these when it's appropriate to access them. And so some conversation around what these resources are and, and even to the extent possible, specific names of people are very helpful. Next slide. Around special needs transferring from and back to an assisted living or nursing home setting, again, I think it's all about communication. And a point of um, real challenge is that around medication changes. That seems to be an area where we slip up. And so being very explicit about medication changes is helpful. Next slide. As persons are maybe transferring from home with home health care providers, families get very confused over what that service is and isn't. When family members hear home health, oftentimes they think someone's coming in every day, all day to take care of their every need. And that simply, as we all know, isn't the case. So families need to know really the parameters around what the services will be that they'll be receiving for how long and what their role might be in arranging this and scheduling this. Next slide, please. Again, in any setting, I think it is imperative that clear communication, documentation about any changes in medications, advanced directives, wound care, feeding, and toileting be made. Um, if a setting is providing care for the person in the past, the, this, that setting wants to know what's different, what's changed, what's stayed the same. Next slide. Caring for the caregiver is everyone's job. Creating a supportive, non-threatening, guilt-free atmosphere is key for family caregivers. We can all do our part by reinforcing the notion that the best care for the care recipient is not always provided at home and helping family members really um, realistically assess what care they can and cannot provide safely. And then certainly the importance of active listening. Next slide. Helping the families adjust to the new normal means helping families see the big picture of dementia, helping them understand that Alzheimer's disease is a progressive debilitating disease, that care needs will change, that likely as, as time goes on, they will need to enlist assistance from others. And starting the conversation about embracing palliative versus curative ways of thinking as appropriate to the situation. All of these things really do help families adjust to the new normal and give them permission um, to ask questions in a non-threatening environment. For more information about this webinar series and other resources, including videos and podcasts, please visit resourcesforintegratedcare.com and follow us on Twitter at integrate underscore care.